periodically, I, um, I like to just kind of go back to um, the basics of what we're doing and why. And whenever I'm engaged in that kind of searching, I almost always end up in the book of Isaiah. And so if I've preached on this passage before, I apologize. I don't really apologize, but it's, um, this is one of those places that God just uses to kind of center me and ground me in his word, his love, his gospel, his calling on my life. And so I want to share with you uh, these first seven verses from the gospel of Isaiah. This is an Old Testament book. And I'm always amazed at how clearly God allowed Isaiah to see the Messiah. Several hundred years before the Messiah would come, God revealed to Isaiah a lot about his coming and his person and his work and his calling upon our lives. And so I want to start in verse 1 of chapter 42 of Isaiah and read through verse 7. This is a passage that's in the midst of a section of Isaiah where God is developing this idea of his servant, and in particular, his servant who would suffer. And so this is one of those points of articulation of who that servant is, who he shall become, and ultimately who we are in him. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. When I was in high school, I played on a football team. It doesn't really matter what sport you play or what instrument you play or what part you play in a larger group, whether it's you know swimming or anything. Um, it's 
this opportunity to be a part of something that sort of transcends who you are. It could be theater. It could be anything. Um, but for me, that experience was a was a sports team. And, you know, one of the simple truths about being on a team is at some point your coach will get upset with at least one person on the team. And inevitably, particularly if it's one or two people, um, we'll just we'll just ask it this way: Does the coach always just single out those two people and say, "Give me a lap"? No, he's very likely to say, "All of you, give me a lap, drop and give me twenty, um, do a what's it, Sydney, a burpee?" Yeah, all right. Um, there's this idea that what happens to one of us is going to happen to all of us. We either all win together or we all lose together. Um, I guess that's a little bit different in swimming, right? You can, you can get the best time in your heat and your team can still be terrible. Yeah, okay. So there are exceptions, but just work with me here. But not in synchronized swimming. One mistake and the whole team gets the mark marked down, right? Sorry, I had to go there. Just had to. Um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes you know to people too well, and it just, yeah, anyway. Okay. Um, our faith is a lot like that dynamic, where what happens to one happens to all. Uh, I had a, a mentor who would want, who once uh, once had a mentor who used to often say, uh, "What blesses one blesses all." And then there was a converse to that. I don't remember, but you know, when one suffers, we all suffer, kind of thing. Um, and what you're looking at in this passage is this concept that God is developing of His suffering servant, His chosen one. But that one is not just one. It's all of us. And God is sort of, uh, through Isaiah, exploding the idea of Israel in terms of who God's people are. And he's saying it's, it's not, it was never intended to be an isolated community. My love was always intended to, to spread to the ends of the earth. And you see this in Israel's history. Right? They, they take the gospel and they sort of huddle up and keep it to themselves. And, um, and then God says, okay, that's kind of missing the point. If you insist, I will have other nations' armies come in. They will take you over and they, were, they will spread your people all over the earth. And they will, take my, they will force my light out of this place into all the earth. And you see that happen. And then God says, I'm going to gather you back, and we're going to go through this again. And this time, they come back with these promises before them as they are beginning to understand um, what God is trying to accomplish through his people. But for now, I just want you to see that while the, the text seems to be talking about one 
servant, that one servant is all of us. It's the body of Christ concept that the Apostle Paul would develop more more fully in the New Testament. Isaiah sees it, he gets it, and he says, we're all in this together. We are all collectively this servant, this presence of God on earth. And so we're taking collectively this passage in two senses this morning. One is prophetic in that Isaiah is looking forward to a servant who would come, who would be willing to suffer on behalf of the salvation of his people. And we're also looking at this passage personally. It not only is speaking of a Christ to come, but it is speaking of who we are in Christ. Now that he has come, he has fulfilled the prophecy and called us into being part of his body. And so this passage has two layers that I I want you to be aware of, and we're going to focus this morning primarily on that second layer in terms of what is this passage calling out of us as God's people. First of all, uh, that we are to, um, well, I guess overall, that we're to spread God's love. We're called into this action of spreading the love of God uh, around the earth. And this begins with our call to spread what is right. You hear um, Isaiah speak of this idea of justice in verses 1 and 3, I guess, again, in 4. So when you're reading a passage and you see a word that's just sort of repeated over and over again, sort of like a a hammer driving in a nail, that's a great thing to pay attention to. God's trying to convey something to us. And this word is actually... uh, this is hard to explain, but so Hebrew existed before that philosophical guy named Plato. You've heard of him, right? And Plato sort of gave Western civilization what we call um, abstract ideas, like justice. I say justice, and there's there's you know this sort of overarching big idea that that I'm talking about. Before Plato, there were no abstract concepts. Everything was was nailed down to uh, Mother Earth, if you will, um, conceptually. And so this word in, in Hebrew is just the word for verdict. That's what it is. A, a, a legal judgment, a decision, a final act. And so... God is repeating this idea that that a verdict will come through this chosen servant. And of course, that verdict will be that you and I in Christ are, are made right before God. His justice is satisfied on the cross of Christ. That we no longer have a legal debt to God because of what Christ has offered on our behalf. And so this idea that Christ has given us his righteousness, what is right about him, and that we are to take that and expand that, extend that into the world and through the way we live. 
So we're to spread around us what is right. Um, incredible perception on Isaiah's part. Um, well, incredible to us, not incredible to him. But we only act in God's strength. If, if I'm going to do what is right, it will not come from my own selfish motives. It will come only from the hand of God working in me and through me in my life. And Isaiah understood this with abundant clarity. We act in God's strength. He directs us. He upholds us. So some of you have heard me talk about this numerous times. Uh, You may even be sick of it, but here I go again. Most religion, and tack on any ism you want to, to that, um, but most religion is a concern for humans to control divinity, to control the outcome, the judgment, the decisions of God. That's what religion sort of boils down to, our attempts to make ourselves okay in God's eyes. And Isaiah sort of reminds us that's foolishness. If you think you can hide your sin well enough that God's not going to find it and not really deal satisfactorily with who you are and what you have done, you're fooling only yourself. And he reminds us that True faith is about being upheld by the hand of God, not by our own actions, efforts, and strivings. So God directs us and upholds us. He chose us, and he delights in us. Uh, There's a pastor outside of Chicago who's famous for saying it this way, God is crazy about you. He is absolutely crazy about you. He loves you. And he actually delights in you. Not because you're awesome, right? But because he has chosen to show you what love looks like. And so, as the object of his affection, we enjoy his delight, his satisfaction in us because of what Christ has done for us, not because of what we chalk up on our own. Okay. So if we're to spread what is right, we must begin by acting out of the strength of God that comes from knowing we are his, that his hand is upon us, his delight is with us. And then we are to act in Christ's meekness. Um, The idea or the thought that Isaiah would come up with this concept is astonishing. He, he lived in a, in a cultural context of tribalism where the ethic of the day was, may the best tribe win. And if my tribe beats up your tribe, then your God dies and your, whatever's left of your people, they come and they worship our God of that hill over there, right? That's the way tribalism worked. And so tribalism was built on strength and power and and cunning and survival. And Isaiah says, 
he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. This idea that we are called because we live in God's strength to manifest meekness in our lives. Not weakness, but meekness. That we're not engaged in trying to extol ourselves. Um, We're called to be humble as God's people. We're called to be compassionate. You know, the ethic of tribalism was brutality. That was what ruled the day in Isaiah's time. And we are called to something completely different. Um, if, if you look, uh, we, uh, if you look at um, one of the things that baffled ancient people about Christianity, when Christianity first came onto the stage in the first century, um, what completely, one of the things, there, there are several, I won't go into all of them, but one of the things that completely confused those who were not Christians about Christianity was simply this, that we were willing to be compassionate and generous towards people outside of our tribe. If you look at tribal cultures, they are always incredibly generous and loyal to their own and typically very fierce and merciless to those not their own. And Christianity, as it was manifest in the first century, was baffling to the first century cultural norm because we, would, we were willing to be generous and compassionate to those not our own. Isaiah sees this, you know, what is it, 600 years, Mark, before Christ, something like that, 650 years, you, you know that, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, Isaiah sees this, this truth of the gospel, and he says, we're to act in God's strength and in Christ's meekness, being humble and compassionate, but persistent. We are to be the ones who hold out for justice and righteousness in this world. The ones who don't back down in the face of oppression. You know, I, I, I received a letter uh, from Robbie Hand. He's a missionary in Beirut, Lebanon, whom we support. Um, and he just he forwarded a letter this week that came from all of the leaders of evangelical Christian churches in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and somewhere else. I didn't even know there were that many. I mean, there were, there were probably 20 signatories to the letter. And these are just the leaders. I don't know how many people they represent. Um, but they were essentially saying two things. It is bleak. We are being wiped off the face of the earth. The cultural landscape, or I should say the multicultural landscape of the Middle East um, has gone from a a trend of diminishment to a trend of complete obliteration. Um, 
And the other thing they said was pray, pray. And if you have any power to, you know, any ability to write an elected official, write them. Tell them to do something because we're getting uh, massacred. I, I say that because their calling is our calling. It's not to run. It's not to quit. It's not to uh, lose hope or give up. Uh, it's to persist for God's, for what is right, for what is good, for what is holy, for what is pure. And our call to shine, spread God's love begins with our call to spread what is right in the world, to do what is right, to be the people of God, to act in his strength, and to act in Christ's meekness. And as we are called to spread what is right, we are called to spread his light through the way we live, the way we relate to other people. Um, it starts, spreading the light of God starts with his word. Um, Isaiah reminds us, thus says God the Lord. Um, it starts with God's word. The, the author of all of creation as Isaiah reminds us, and as we are reminded in Genesis 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light. It begins with his word. All of this does. The word of, of the one who gave birth to all of creation. The word of the one who gives us all of our being. By his word, his light is, is shined in the world. It starts with his word, and his light is propelled by his faithfulness. We are sustained, again, by the hand of God in all that we do. We are sustained by his strength. And in the same way that we are sustained by his hand, we are called to be his hands, to reach out to the world around us and effect change, to bring about good, to shine his light. Um, Here's what we're looking at. The God who spoke all of existence into being, his word creates, his word changes, his word evokes from us spirit and life. And in the midst of all the chaos of life, there is one factor that remains unchanged. It's the person of God. The truth of his presence. The brilliance of his light. And so everything 
is founded in his word and sustained by his faithfulness. And ultimately, what God speaks into our lives brings deliverance. We see this prophecy from Isaiah that this servant will be given as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This Christ brings us out of our bondage to sin. And he calls us to be those who carry forward this action in the lives of others so that our presence in other people's lives causes change, causes light to be shown where there was darkness. He calls us out of bondage and into a new perception that we are free, that we are forgiven, that we are loved, that we are precious in God's sight and not condemned or dirty or broken, but rather desired, delighted in is the way to put it. You know, when John the Baptist was going around being weird, you know, nobody really understood what he was doing. And he uh, he wore weird clothes, he ate weird food, he said weird things, he, he did this weird baptism thing, this washing. Um, and there's scriptural evidence from a passage in Luke, I think it's in chapter 7, that John wasn't even 100% clear what it was he was doing. He just knew that he had to do it. And so he kept saying that he's coming, that the Messiah is coming. And then Jesus shows up, and John hears about him, and he sends some of his followers to go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one? Are you the one who is to come? And Jesus says to John's followers, go back to John and tell him that the blind see, that the deaf hear, um, and a couple other things. I, I'd butcher it if I uh, tried to quote it off the top of my head. But he refers back to this exact passage. and says, Yes, the signs are fulfilled. I have come. I am the one who will bring salvation and forgiveness and grace not just to one ethnic group of people, but to the whole world. And so our calling is exactly that, to to spread the love of Christ, to shine his light in this dark and hurting world, to be his people who are generous outside of our tribe. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we marvel at your word. We thank you that you have chosen broken vessels 
such as we are, to be your agents of light in this dark and hurting world. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit and lead us by your hand and your strength to shine your light, to see lives change, to see marriages restored, to see relationships healed, to see this world become a better place because of who you are and what you do through us. Lord, we thank you for the calling that you have set before us in Christ. We pray that you would give us the strength to live in meekness, that we might spread your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.